Hi, welcome to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast, a weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. I am Lee Campbell-Taylor, the interim pastor here, and Covenant Presbyterian Church is an open, affirming congregation, and we're so glad you found us. Our primary mission is to equip God's people to serve Christ in the world. In our weekly messages, we hope that you'll find inspiration, encouragement, and even challenge for your faith journey. Please listen with us now. A youth once asked me, stuff you say before your sermon, does that count as part of your sermon? Yes. Sometimes there's something I want you to hear before you hear the biblical text, something that I hope will help connect us with that text, and today that's definitely the case. Today, if I thought you'd sit for it, I would read you the entire first four chapters of the Gospel of Luke because this writer knows how to tell a story. There's a cinematic quality to how he lays out the foundation of this drama, and yet cinematic isn't the word because it's vital that we see Jesus as flesh and blood and in our midst. And so instead of cinema, visualize a live theater production, even an opera. This is that big. Visualize the grandest theater you can imagine. The stage is enormous. The special effects are tremendous. The cast is stellar. And the play is the Gospel of Luke, part one. The curtain opens on an elderly priest and the life he shares with his elderly wife. They are faithful but childless. Suddenly, a magnificent angel descends and announces that they will have a son who will turn the people toward God. Through costume changes, the woman, Elizabeth, grows to be visibly pregnant. And at that moment, the angel descends again this time to an unwed young woman who's told that she will bear the Son of God. These two unlikely mothers-to-be meet in a triumphant duet praising God. Elizabeth gives birth, names her son John, and exits the stage after her husband's own song of praise. And we now focus on Mary who, accompanied by her betrothed, also gives birth. In response, the entire acting company throngs the stage, spilling out into the audience. Angels swing from the chandeliers as, as shepherds dance in the aisles, and everyone sings, Jubilate Deo. Still singing, the cast of thousands relinquishes the space, and the spotlight catches Mary and Joseph, as they dedicate their eight-day-old child in the temple, naming him Jesus. The spotlight expands to include Simeon and Anna the prophetess, whose awestruck duet underscores the wonder of this child. Church, are you noticing how Luke has created this community that surrounds Jesus with everyone underscoring Jesus' significance? Well, our grand production must have one of those revolving sets because the next scene leaps forward in time to show us the 12-year-old Jesus, again at the temple with his parents. The boy lingers with the teachers and is not found for three days. 
We see the frantic parents rush to him, and we hear, for the first time, his voice. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And the little family exits together. The cityscape recedes, replaced by wilderness. A river runs through it, and on its banks stands John. Elizabeth's boy is now a man, a wild prophet that crowds are flocking to. And like them, we in the audience wonder if he's the main character. He insists that he is not, that he is simply pointing to the one who is coming, and at that moment, Jesus appears. He too is grown up, and in a fleeting stage picture, we see two men whom we first met when they were both in utero. But then a troop of Herod's soldiers approaches John. His function fulfilled, he exits to let us focus on the Messiah whom he foretold. And we witness the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit depicted by a fluttering of wings and maybe a piercingly bright beam of light descending from on high as an offstage voice proclaims, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The crowd departs, the river disappears, Jesus remains. Across the lip of the stage, a parade of sorts is choreographed, showing Jesus' earthly ancestors. It begins with his adopted father, Joseph, and then reveals scores of people we've never heard of, along with a few we recognize, King David and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Adam. Luke wants us to know that this Jesus, whom God has claimed as beloved son, is kin to all of humankind. His ancestors file into the wings, and the vast stage now stands utterly empty except for Jesus, except for Jesus and that brilliant Holy Spirit signifying light pouring down from heaven. Through the course of this next scene, the light will always be slightly in front of Jesus. It leads him. It will never leave him. But suddenly, creeping up from the far side of the orchestra pit, a new character enters the scene. And now we reach the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Jesus ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command the stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only God. 
And then the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. This too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I took you through that opening visualization because having the full sweep of this story freshly within us strengthens the impact of what we encounter here. This may be Luke's fourth chapter, but this is the very start of Jesus' ministry. He hasn't called a single disciple, taught a single lesson, preached a single sermon, worked a single miracle, no healings, no feedings, no nothing. He's on the doorstep of his life's work. And how does the Holy Spirit usher him over the threshold? By immersing him in the reality of temptation. In three lessons, Jesus gets a crash course in the human condition, the condition he is entering in order to redeem it. The first temptation seems benign, turns stone into bread. It's as if the devil were saying, you're hungry, fix it. And it's not selfish or gluttonous because then you can go and feed all the other hungry people. Why would you not? Well, because back when Jesus' ancestors were wandering in the wilderness, one of the ways Yahweh transformed a people who saw themselves as Pharaoh's slaves into a people who knew themselves as God's people was by teaching them of God's goodness, by feeding them with God's manna. Jesus reaches through the haze of his hunger to find the book of Deuteronomy. One does not live by bread alone. The second temptation is the one that really gets me because it really can seem that what the devil calls all authority really has been turned over to the forces of evil. These days I am railing to God about Vladimir Putin with such vigor that our cats take cover. But even before this horror, I've long been queasy with how often the kingdoms of the world from state legislatures to national governments, local businesses to international corporations, families to schools to entire industries behave as though they have been really and truly given over to the enemy of God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all earthly organizations were run by Jesus? But the devil says that that comes with the precondition that even the Son of God must worship something other than God, as much as I in my weakness might look for a loophole so that I could be okay with that. It's a non-starter for the Messiah who again quotes Deuteronomy, worship the Lord your God, serve only God. The third temptation may be the subtlest. 
for Jesus to hurl himself off the temple in Jerusalem, the heart of the city that is the heart of his people, would be to dare God into engineering a spectacular intervention. From this side of Easter, we know that God's plan calls not for some crowd-pleasing stunt, but for a hideously public execution and a confoundingly private resurrection. Being scooped up by a SWAT team of angels would spare Jesus the pain of being fully, vulnerably human. And it would spare us the need to have faith in the God who is willing to be God with us. So Jesus returns to Deuteronomy. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And with that, Jesus can begin his ministry. But what about us? This gospel opens with three elaborate chapters of heavenly hosts in human history, priests and prophets, women and men, all creating a polyphonic introduction of this superstar Messiah. We hear essentially nothing from Jesus, but we hear all about how special Jesus is. From every angle, Luke tells us that this Jesus is the Son of God. So of course Jesus can resist temptation. He's the Son of God. But us? I cannot stand here and with any integrity say, Jesus didn't give in to temptation and so neither should you. And if anyone ever does say that to you, anyone, including yourself, please respond with something like this. Yes, but Jesus is the Son of God. I am a child of God, thanks be to God, but I'm not Jesus. So let's not hear this story as a challenge to meet Jesus in willpower, wisdom, or righteousness. Let's hear it as confirmation that Jesus knows what we're going through. Jesus' entire ministry is launched directly out of his lived experience of the relentless, shape-shifting dastardliness of temptation. That's the power of this story. Every year, Lent includes some version of it. This story's 40 days in the wilderness is the basis for the 40 days of Lent. Jesus' fasting is the basis for Lent's emphasis on self-denial. Jesus' facing down of the temptation of sin is the basis for Lent's focus on our need to repent of sin and lean into God's mercy because we cannot free ourselves from sin. Lent is the season when we are reminded that Jesus shares our experience of temptation, even though we don't share his perfect resistance to temptation. That's what this story declares. And this story also reminds us that we are not alone. Believing you are alone is one of the greatest temptations in our wilderness. It manifests itself in two chief ways. One is loneliness, hopelessness, despair. And the other is forging ahead in striving self-reliance. If you've ever succumbed to either of those, I invite you to raise your hand. And if you're online, go ahead and note it in the comments. 
In the bizarre wilderness of the past two years, we have been overwhelmed with temptation to feel alone. But we are not. Luke spent all of that storytelling to present the community that surrounded Jesus. Well, we too are blessed with community. Just look around and also know that there are people worshiping with us online. That's astonishing. Beautiful as that is, beautiful as all these companions are, we are also accompanied by, as was Jesus, the Holy Spirit, that mysterious one who might be light and the fluttering of wings is with us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, a feast is spread and the communion of saints gathers. Church, it's tempting to succumb to the fear that you are alone, that you are not. Even in the wilderness, we are not alone. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast. I invite you to visit our website, covpresatl.org. That's C-O-V-P-R-E-S-A-T-L.org. There you'll find current worship information, links to our live Sunday morning streaming service, and our full archive of recorded services. You'll also find out more about us and how to get in touch. I wish you well in these strange times. God is with us. Grace and peace to you.